Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Price competition is a key force for restraining the price of prescription drugs. The most notable form of competition is generic drugs. When they enter the market, the price of branded drugs falls quickly. The story is more complex when it comes to competition between branded drugs. List prices, which are publicly reported, do not show much movement when a new drug is introduced. But as observers of health policy know, and probably many listeners of this podcast, drug pricing is notoriously opaque, and net prices, list prices, less rebates provided by manufacturers, is what really matters, and net prices are not available to the public. So does branded prescription drug competition yield lower net prices? That's the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Sean Dixon, Senior Vice President of Pharmaceutical Policy and Strategy at AHIP. Mr. Dixon and co-authors published a paper in the August 2023 issue of Health Affairs assessing the impact of the introduction of new pharmaceutical competition on net prices and spending on existing therapies. Now, despite the lack of evidence regarding reductions in list prices, they found that the introduction of new therapeutic competition was associated with a 4.2% decrease in net price growth per year. This amounts to billions of dollars of potential savings for payers. We'll discuss these findings in today's episode. Mr. Dixon, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. I'm very happy to be here. So this is a complicated topic, and our goal here is to make it accessible, uh, but also interesting by not... uh, dumbing it down too much, let's start with sort of how the basics of uh, drug introduction, brand name competition, uh, competitor drugs, generic competition, sort of the life cycle of a new drug and competition uh, against that drug. How does that sort of start to happen in the pharmaceutical space? Well, first, it's important to recognize that the dynamics of a new brand drug coming into the market are very different than the dynamics of generic competition. And what we're talking about here is a new brand drug that is therapeutically similar to an existing product, not necessarily a revolutionary new product that is, you know, changing the nature of treatment. So when a new brand drug enters the market, it's either trying to compete on some form of of therapeutic improvement or a more patient-friendly mode of administration, Though a lot of the times it's not really an improvement in either domain, and it's really just more of a marketing exercise that that the competition is based on just kind of like at the grocery store with competing brands. So when that new brand competitor enters the market, it's trying to gain market share by switching patients from the existing therapy and getting their prescribers to select the newer drug uh, with whatever marketing strategy or minor therapeutic advance they have, or trying to get new patients who are newly diagnosed for that condition to be started on the newer product. In order to achieve either of those goals, though, this new drug needs to be favored by insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers that operate formularies, and that really means competing on price with the existing product, right? This is not an example where it's a brand new therapeutic area. You would have to cover the drug because of its importance. Instead, you don't have that novelty factor, so you have to have competition on price. Now, that's very different than the generic market, which you also mentioned, right? In the generic market, what is trying to happen is to compete on switches. So to get the individual to stay on the same molecule or therapy, but to have it substituted for a lower cost product. 
And so that pricing strategy is actually less driven at the insurance company and more about the pharmacy, where you have multiple manufacturers of the same sort of commoditized product, encouraging the pharmacy to stock their version on the shelves to promote whatever margin they're getting during reimbursement. And so that puts pressure on the branded price. And you could see instances where, you know, during those first year or so of transition, um, there is price competition between the brand and generic, but overall, it really moves to a more commodity market where they're competing amongst similar products at the pharmacy counter. Okay, so since your paper focuses on the branded side, I just want to make sure I'm kind of getting the lay of the land over there because it's it's not what you see, as you note, when you go to the pharmacist. So you have the first drug in to uh, provide some sort of therapeutic benefit they go out and market, they find, as you say, you, you've got to get the prescribers because as a patient, I'm not picking the drug. The prescriber's deciding you need this and you need the insurance coverage for it. Um, and then the second one comes in. And as you said, you've either you've got to convince the prescribers that this one is as good or maybe even a little better, but you also have to convince the insurer um, and that... So what does it take to convince the insurer? I kind of get it on the prescriber side. How much of this is about price and how much of it is about therapeutic benefit? Or is it, it kind of both? It's certainly a weighing of both, right? You know, a, a pharmacy and therapeutics committee at an insurer is going to look at new drug introductions, assess whether that drug is novel enough that it needs to be added to the formulary or whether it could be a candidate for formulary inclusion if it makes therapeutic sense as well as cost sense. And so what we see is sort of a real intense competition among those branded products to both be preferred or all three of them or more to be preferred on formulary. But we don't see that competition on list price except in a very few sort of select instances where there's been some market distortions. Instead, they're competing separately to negotiate, you know, discounts based on bulk, based on formulary placement with specific insurers. And in part, that's mediated by the fact that, right, these products are stocked at retail pharmacies on our street corners, and they have to stock all of the different versions of these therapeutic areas for all the different insurers that may be preferring a different one. And so it's very hard for that price negotiation to happen up front um, and to still be able to discern between insurer A versus insurer B. So that negotiation all happens on the back end through rebates and other forms of discounts that go back to um, your premiums and ultimately reduce spending overall. So when you just look at the sticker price, the list price, you get new drugs coming in that are that are addressing the same therapeutic issue. You don't see much movement. But then you've got all this behind the scenes stuff, which is the negotiation for volume and for placement in the formulary that can drive the price. That's the net price. Um, so. The methods you used in your paper are, are, are complicated, but why don't you just help the, me and the listener understand what were you trying to figure out about what happens uh, with net price and, and, and what trends you were trying to observe, how you did that? So the standard way to think about net price of drugs and how we can calculate it and look how it changes over time is to look at pharmaceutical company financials where they disclose their net sales on a particular product. And for the large publicly traded companies with big products, they will break out sales of individual products because that's of interest to investors. And so what you try and do is you take that sort of net data, how much revenue they made, and try and figure out how many units were dispensed over that time period 
and calculate the net price. The challenge is you have a lot of sort of confounding pressures that reduce that sort of net sales beyond the price that an insurer, particularly in the commercial market, is actually paying. And so the biggest sort of confounder here are mandatory discounts under a series of government programs. Um, The biggest one is the Medicaid program, which has rebates that are required to be paid to states to offset their cost of drugs. And then you have a few other programs, um, one that's called the 340B drug discount program that requires drug manufacturers to sell their drugs to certain types of safety net institutions at lower prices. So all of those discounts are captured in that net sales figure, but that's not the net price that is being paid by your commercial insurance or the Medicare Part D program. So what was novel about our approach is we were able to back out those Medicaid and 340B discounts to better take the remaining sales dollars and amortize them over the commercial sales that would be subject to these discounts to get a much better picture of what that net price was. And we were able to validate a lot of the net prices we estimated against public disclosures of prices under uh, congressional investigations where some of these data were made public. So we feel really strong about these results that they match some sort of external sources where we are able to do it. And we think they're more accurate than other methods of simply taking that that net number and really sort of back of the envelope, putting it into a unit price. So let's go to what you found. How many drugs were you looking at? What was the trend line that you were trying to understand and how did it shift? So our goal was to take a period of years and look at all new drugs that were introduced during that period. So we looked at the period from 2011 to 2019 and all new drugs that were approved. Working with some pharmacy experts, we matched those new drugs to existing therapeutic classes where there was a similar competition, right? Trying to find drugs that weren't truly novel, but that were very similar and therapeutically related to existing products. And so that gave us 12 classes where we had enough data over a long enough time period to both observe the price trend of the existing product for at least three years, and then also looking at the price trend after the new product was introduced. So we looked at 12 therapeutic classes over this period, and what we found was that before the new competitor entered, we were seeing net price growth of about 7% per year. So those list price increases, which were often higher than that, were translating into about a 7% net price increase per year. After that new competitor entered, we found that that price growth of the existing product was only about 2% per year. So there were some examples where the net prices actually started falling once the competitor came onto the market. But across all of those therapeutic classes, the trend was a slower net price growth. And that lower price growth reduced spending by about 10% in the first year after competition across this pool of drugs and by about 20% in years two, three, and four. So that's some real savings, and it looks like some real competition. I want to understand the implications of these findings um, in a little more detail. We'll have that conversation after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Sean Dixon about changes in net prices and spending for pharmaceuticals after new therapeutic competitors were introduced. Before the break, we kind of got the top line finding some really big reductions in growth rates of of prices after uh, new uh, competitors were introduced. Now, as we discussed earlier, the, the there's little movement of list price. And I think maybe you've already answered this question by describing sort of that this is a 
almost a post hoc process. But I am just trying to understand if someone had looked at the literature and seen that there is not a solid basis for the argument that list prices decline when there are uh, competitors, um, how would they then come to understand what's happening uh, behind the findings that you're describing of there are reductions in the growth rate of net prices, but there aren't reductions in the growth rate of list price? Well, I think it's first important to look at those list price dynamics. And we know from a lot of antitrust or competition work that among substitutable products, the product with a lower list price may actually be disfavored when you have the ability to negotiate prices. And the reason for that is the purchaser will often go to the highest price product and use the public lower price of a substitute as a backstop for negotiation, saying, you have to beat this price of your competitor. And if you do so, then I'll favor you. And so that means that everybody actually negotiates with the most expensive product first and, and whoever's supplying that. And that's why you see a lot of price matching in this market and other markets as well, because you don't want to be at a disadvantage in negotiations by having an overly low list price that becomes the backstop for everyone else's negotiation. So that's why we see lockstep price increases over time and trends um, in the pharmaceutical market as well as other markets. But we know that these negotiations are happening behind the scenes to reduce prices because we see it in formularies, right, where an existing product um, may be differently favored. Uh, you have a new product that comes on the market and that gets the better treatment because it's disclosed um, under the Medicare Part D program, how some of these things are done. And so it's become sort of the standard practice. And so that's why we felt we needed to shine some more light on what's happening there um, and show both the value of competition and bringing down prices, as well as some of the areas where we might not see that kind of, of price competition given co uh, new entrants. And I know we're not the first to talk about it, but it really is just a reminder that the, the uh, dynamics of setting and modifying list prices are almost detached from the uh, setting and dynamics of net prices. And so anytime you look at one without the other, you're, you're, you're getting truly only a part of the picture. Uh, as I say, we're not the first to discuss that, but this seems like additional evidence for that uh, proposition. Now, you described at the uh, outset about a very different set of dynamics around generics, but if I think about the life cycle of a product, you may have you have a new branded therapeutic, you may have some additional uh, branded competitors, but somewhere down the line, if it becomes a generic, that does change the nature of competition quite significantly. So carry this story forward with me if you could. You see these effects on net prices with branded competition. Um, could there be any effect of what you found here or any relationship between what you found here and the timing and the scale or type of competition when a generic is introduced? So that's an area for future research using our methodology. And I think a really exciting way to think about that would be to look at what happens to the prices of branded products that are not subject to generic competition when generic competition comes for one of their competing branded products, right? How does a generic in the therapeutic space, rather than a direct generic competitor, affect the pricing strategies of those products? We've seen this play out in 
other markets. You know, uh, right now we're in a really interesting situation with the advent of some biosimilar, which are generic-like products for insulin. And so there's going to be a lot of questions about how those are favored on formularies versus newer types of insulin. How do we think about an insulin that people have been using for many years that now has a biosimilar equivalent, but has a slightly different dosing schedule than some of these, you know, modest therapeutic improvements we've seen in the insulin market over time? That's going to be really fascinating. I think an area we'd like to look at at future research. But certainly, given that we see price reductions from the introduction of a new supposedly better therapy on existing products, I think we would anticipate to see similar price reductions on branded products when a generic competitor enters the therapeutic area, even if it's not directly substitutable for an individual product. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see uh, as as you work with this uh, through that next level. Okay, so here we are in an environment where PBMs, pharmaceutical benefit managers, are under tremendous scrutiny, political pressure for the role that they play. And this is not a podcast about PBMs, uh, but it's hard not to think about them as I read your study, because um, if I'm getting sort of the top line findings right, it's that there is actually some competition driving net prices, which are the prices that are ultimately paid down because of practices that certainly have the PBM right in the middle. The, the They're deciding on the formularies, they're deciding on the discounts. Now, I get that there are all, all kinds of questions about who gets the money and is it opaque and transparency. I get all of that. But if I if I just step away from sort of the controversy and I ask the question, does your paper provide some evidence that PBMs are playing a pro-competitive role when it comes to therapeutically com- uh, comparable branded drugs, my first reaction would be, yeah, they are. Is that the right reaction? Well, that's certainly what our data shows, right? We've known for years that pharmacy benefit managers have been effective at reducing drug spend. That's been quite apparent in the Medicare Part D program, which leverages pharmacy benefit managers and private insurers to administer the benefit. That program has consistently seen lower premium growth than initially projected, lower spending, and that's because of the ability to negotiate discounts, manage utilization, and therefore manage cost. And so what we have here is additional evidence of that in the broader market, right? Looking at the sort of product-specific way that, you know, within a year of a new product entering the market, we're already able to see um, about a 10% discount on the existing therapy. And so, right, seeing that price growth go from 7% per year to 2% per year was pretty incredible um, in this study, And even to look at some of the specific examples of drugs where we actually saw decreases in price trend following the introduction of new competition, right? This isn't just explained by some sort of overall market shift. These are very clear point in time changes in price trend. um, And that has to be the result of leveraging this competition by PBMs for negotiating prices. And those savings get passed into premiums for all of us. So I keep waiting for the but. (laughs) <laughs> is there no but? Is it yes? I mean, or is the but just, but maybe there should be more transparency about how they do it, or we should know more about where the dollars go? Or is this basically a, a are, are, are you done? That, <laughs> that, that yes, this is evidence of their effectiveness. Well, it's a really interesting set of questions, right? Because one of the reasons that we're able to 
likely see some of these discounts is the confidential nature of these negotiations. And I think what's really important to look at is in our study, we're not looking at the example of one PBM versus another and the discounts that PBM A is able to achieve versus PBM B. These are market-wide reductions in prices of existing drugs following new competition, or at least market-wide reductions in price growth. So one PBM may be choosing drug A over drug B, um, but that is still resulting in slower price growth across the market for that drug. And so the questions about are PBMs doing their job, are these prices and discounts getting passed on to consumers and employers, you know, those are some really interesting and important transparency questions. And I think there's a lot of debate about what level of transparency is helpful versus what level of transparency can reduce the ability to negotiate these substantial discounts. But the evidence certainly is here that we are reducing spending on prescription drugs via competition, and that competition is managed by pharmacy benefit managers. Okay, so I guess the the counterfactual is is basically impossible to scrutinize, which is imagine a world without discounts where list prices were actually the prices paid. Um, maybe no PBMs in that picture. You would expect there to be some competition when new products are introduced, and you wouldn't know whether it brings the rate of growth of prices down by 4.2%, more than that or less than that. And I suppose if we really wanted to ask the question, are PBMs the best way to effectuate the the competition, we'd have to compare it to a world that we just don't have. Uh, So so what we're seeing is a market that's working, uh, or I should say a market that is yielding savings, and that's real and that's what your data show. Um, but what we don't know is, is that the only market that would yield savings or is that the best market to generate those kinds of savings? That's sort of beyond the reach of any of our ability to know. Is that fair? Well, we do have something that we can look at as a comparison, and that is the market for provider-administered drugs, right? Drugs that are infused, injected. Um, those are usually covered by the Medicare Part B program, and right, older adults are the ones who are using these drugs in sort of the largest share. And what we've seen is that spending growth on Part B drugs, provider-administered drugs, is growing at a much faster rate um, than what we're seeing in the retail drug market, the oral drug market in Medicare Part D. Now, there are many reasons for this. Some of this is the introduction of new products and the change in therapy to that type of modality. So we are seeing increasing spending. But there's no break on prices in that program. There is no one to negotiate a discount either up front or after the fact. There's no one to say you need to prefer the lower price product over the more expensive one because they are therapeutically similar. And so we've seen a lot of proposals to address some of the inefficiencies in that market that are driving up spending. But it is a pretty clear comparison to what's going on in the commercial market where PBMs are active and their ability to leverage competition to bring down prices. So that's fascinating. I mean, and it also gets to the role of the prescriber and the incentives of the prescriber that in order for markets to function, there are a lot of ingredients that are necessary. Um, and and uh, uh, But that's a great uh, counterexample. Well, Mr. Dixon, thank you so much for taking a very complex topic and making it understandable, at least to me and I suspect to our listeners, for the real contribution of this research. It's the first we've seen, uh, to my knowledge, of of analysis at a market-wide level of what the uh, effects are on prices, uh, net prices of competition. And um, you've left us with some 
tantalizing questions for additional research. Thank you for being my guest today on a Health Policy. Very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a Health Policy.